sounds like a knucklehead. Welcome back to the Chase Brewster Show. I am your host, Chase Brewster. Today I have a very special guest, someone who has become a friend to me, but also a mentor when it comes to pitching and and, uh, putting young athletes first. Someone who I know personally has influenced and helped many, many uh, players in the state of Arkansas and, and at the University of Arkansas. And someone that the baseball community will tell you is one of the best pitching coaches in the country none other than the University of Arkansas's pitching coach, Matt Hobbs. I appreciate you coming on the show today, Coach. Chase, thanks for having me, man. That that intro is too kind. Well, we, we appreciate all that you do, um, not only for our guys, but, uh, you know, all the guys that, that, uh, that, that end up at the university. And, um, you know, obviously you're world-renowned and very respected and, and just on a friendship level, you know, I appreciate everything that, that you've done for me. You, you've taken many a calls when you didn't have to and, uh, you know, just been very good to me. So I appreciate that. And I'm looking forward to having you on the show today. Awesome, man. I appreciate you too, Chase. You know, I think, I think it's very important um, for me as a host to kind of dive into to your background a little bit. I think, um, you know, you're, you're one of the most respected coaches now, obviously, but, but had a very good career. Um, California kid, if I'm correct, played at University of Missouri yep. um, and got drafted by the Padres and the Royals. So um, correct. left-handed pitcher, I believe, if that's if my memory serves correct. That's right. So take us through that journey. How does a California kid uh, end up at the University of Missouri? You, you played with some was, – was obviously some good players at Mizzou, including Tony Vitello. Um, so talk about your time there. There was, there was a bunch of good players come through there and then – uh, on into pro ball a little bit. Yeah, so my story is kind of interesting because I was originally going to go walk on at Loyola Marymount University. Um, I, I decided that was where I was going to go to school, and I was just going to be a walk-on. I had no real scholarship offers or anything. I had some schools that were interested in recruiting me out of high school, but nothing like you know the, some of the players that we get to coach with all the offers that they have. Um, but I threw in an all-star game in a high school all-star game and the coaches for Missouri were there for some reason. I don't know why. And they saw me throw. And about a month later I was committed to Missouri. So ended up playing out there, having a great experience. Uh, Was lucky to be drafted twice um, by the Padres and the Royals and got hurt my senior year. So kind of just shut it down after my senior year of, of baseball and knew that I wanted to get into coaching. But while I was at Missouri, you know, definitely had a chance to play with some really good guys, guys in the game. You know, we don't, I don't know if we play, we even had a big leaguer while I was there in terms of guys that ended up playing in the show, but, you know, got to play with Tony Vitello, who's a, still a good friend and obviously done a great job at the university of Tennessee, you know, Jace Tingler, who was an MLB manager. I think he's now a bench coach with the twins. Uh, Garrett Brocious, who's done an unbelievable job. Uh, fighting for the you know the rights of minor league baseball players, I think he just was a, 
the head of a class action suit that netted almost $200 million for minor leaguers. Just a bunch of people that ended up in the game and around the game and got to learn from Coach Tim Jamison, who's one of the best. And I think he's actually now the pitching coach at Memphis. So he's stayed in the game after his career at Missouri finished up. But the the opportunity to play there and learn from those players and those coaches and get a chance to spread your wings a little bit. If you're you know, a Southern California kid going to school at Missouri, that's halfway across the country and way out of my comfort zone. So I think that's one of the things that was the best about the experience for me was getting a chance to get away from home and, you know, not having a real safety net. It was just, it had to work. So, you know, I had to stay through some hard times. I didn't pitch a whole lot as a freshman. I was pretty bad, to be honest. I didn't throw a whole lot of strikes and had to turn myself into something. So I ended up pitching a little bit more my sophomore, junior, and then my senior year got hurt. So kind of went through and ran the gamut of, of what it was to be a baseball player and, I think that that gives me a great deal of empathy for how hard it is for the things that our guys have to do, especially, you know, at the University of Arkansas, we, you know, we have a great state to recruit from in Arkansas, but we have to go outside the state too. And we have to bring in kids from all over the place. And I think that, you know, even though it was a long time ago, um, you know, I did that. I went way away from home. So I think I could, I could have a lot of empathy for what the kids have had to experience or they're going through it's because it's tough. You know, it's, it's, as much as we want to think that it's just about baseball and all they care about is baseball and that's all they ever want to do, they're still kids. And we got to have some idea of what they're going through. So hopefully that's given me some perspective. But, you know, that part of my journey, at least at the beginning side of it, was I mean, it's so beneficial because a lot of these people are still people that I talk to on a regular basis and I can bounce ideas off of. And you know, honestly, I think one of the reasons that I was kind of an attractive hire for Coach Van Horn is because of Tony. You know, I think that he had some experience with me and, you know, he knew me and Tony had obviously coached here at Arkansas. So I, I think that I, I'm not saying it's the whole reason, but I think part of the reason is, you know, there's some familiarity there between Coach Van Horn and Tony. And maybe that's one of the reasons why my name gets bounced around, got bounced around for this job. Well, we, we love Coach Van Horn and, and we love Coach Fontello as well. Um, trying to get both of them on the show, if you know, if you if you happen to know them, put in, put in a good word. Uh, I definitely will. It's a lot easier to get Tony to do something than Coach Van Horn. Uh, but um, tell me how, how, how miserable was it for a SoCal kid to be spending his winters in Columbia, Missouri? <laughs> that was probably – I was not expecting it to be cold like it was. I remember going outside for the first time when it, it had really turned cold. It's like October, middle of October. And I look outside, and this is before you had a phone that had like every possible piece of information about the weather on it or before you were smart enough to check the weather before you went outside. And I just looked outside my dorm and it saw clear skies. You know, 8 a.m., 8.30 class or whatever, the skies are clear, the sun's out, shorts, a t-shirt, I'm ready to go. And I remember walking out the door of my dorm and the, the wind hit me. And that was the first time I realized I was in the Midwest. It like went through my body. <laughs> so, <laughs> I had to go back upstairs. I missed that class that day. But um, yeah, the winters were, were it, it's just different. You get used to it. I don't think you ever get used to being cold. I mean, anyone that tells you it like gets easier, it's just, you're still cold. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. I mean, I think that that was tough. But the, the part that I struggled with the most was like trying to pitch in that stuff at the beginning of the year. <laughs> Because your hands get cold and it's like 
I had never had to deal I had never had to deal with that before. So that was definitely that part was a learning curve for me. But you know, hopefully, like it's easier now with all the stuff that we have to allow guys to be able to do that a little more easy than I had to. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So so you get done playing. Um, first job was at Chapman, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, Chapman I, University. I don't even know where that's at, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's in Anaheim. It's a Division three school. It's an interesting story how I got it. So you so, wanted to go back to SoCal, or you just happened to run across it? I think I had to go back to SoCal. I, got to. I didn't. I, I worked in the office at Missouri right when I got done playing for about a about a half of a year, just when I was finishing up my degree. And I got done, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was like, I'm going to be a high school coach. And to do that, I had to go back to school and I wasn't going to do it in Missouri. I was like, you know, I could live at home and go back to school. So I'm researching graduate programs all over the Southland, all over Southern California and thinking, where can I, where can I get a job coaching and try to go to school at the same time? And I had emailed or called or researched everything I possibly could. And it was just coming up totally empty. I got turned down for like every possible job out there. And finally, I get one response from Chapman. It was the only one that gave me like a legitimate response. And it was just like, hey, thanks for your interest. Which hand do you throw with? And I was like, well, that's an odd question. And I was like, I'm left-handed. So all of a sudden, I become like very attractive to them. So <laughs> I threw left-handed. I could throw left-handed batting practice. And they're like, well, you just got done playing. Can you throw from the mound? So I'm like, yeah, I guess. So I was like throwing like live BP, basically for the entire year and going to school. I was going to try to get my like teaching credential or something and like a graduate program. I forget. It's so, it seems like so long ago I was substitute teaching and coaching. Um, I was, and I was honestly, I was like a volunteer coach. Basically. I, I think I made a thousand dollars that year and just kind of got bit by the college bug. I realized about halfway through the season, I don't want to deal with high school kids. I want to coach these college kids and kind of just went from there. So how long were you there before you went to Santa Barbara? Just a year. And then Santa Barbara City came about. I was coaching in the summer ball in Santa Barbara. I played for the Santa Barbara Foresters uh, when I was in college and played for a guy named Bill Pintard, who still is like a close friend. And this is, you know, our, our relationship now goes back 20, 20 plus years. And he's like a legend out there on, in Santa Barbara and, and from a baseball perspective. And I got to play for him and then, I came back and I was wanting to continue to coach in the summers because like I wasn't recruiting for Chapman and I was lucky enough to become the pitching coach for the Foresters and halfway through the summer, the pitching coach at Santa Barbara city college quit. So they needed a pitching coach. So I would just, I was just local and just happened to be there. And I got that job at the end of the summer. So I'm just like, kind of the season the, the summer ball season ends and here I am like nowhere to live in Santa Barbara like I'm going to start coaching at Santa Barbara City and it's really expensive to live in Santa Barbara mm -hmm. as I'm sure you can imagine oh, yeah. so here here I am like no 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 money living in trying to live in one of the wealthiest areas in California so I'm working like four jobs I'm a you know I'm working at a gym I opened a gym at like 4 30 in the morning and then I would go to the field and work at the field. And then I was, I would coach and then I would get done with all of that and then go give lessons in a batting cage till like nine o'clock at night. So I was do I did that until like, I could barely like do it anymore. And 
you know, luckily, luckily, thank God, I ended up getting the UC San Diego job out of that job after I was there for three years. So I think it was three or four years at Santa, at Santa Barbara and then got the UC San Diego job, which actually paid like a decent amount of money, oh, yeah. but I'm still living in La Jolla. So I now pick like the second richest place in Southern California to work. So I'm trying to make that work and, you know, coach and recruit. And that was like, that was my first real taste of recruiting, I think was uh, San, San Diego. So I was able to do that. We had a really good run there. Uh, I think my third year, maybe second or third year, we went to the the Division Two World Series. And then a year after that was when I got my first Division One opportunity. So San, San Francisco. So as a guy who doesn't know much about California, it's a different world between San Diego and San Francisco, right? Oh, yeah. Much different. Um, so how was that for know, leaving San Diego to go to San Francisco? It was nuts because I was, again, like, you know, I hadn't been making a ton of money at San Diego. I'd been making enough to survive. And then I moved to San, Di San Francisco, which was like twice as expensive as San Diego. So like the beginning part of my coaching career was just trying to figure out how to do it, you know, not yeah, like yeah. the coaching part, just figure out how to afford to like live and coach at the same time. And, you know, I didn't do it alone. I got help. Certainly my parents were influential in like allowing me to like, have some money sometimes to be able to do some things. So they helped me out quite a bit, but like you're working a couple different jobs and it wasn't until San Francisco where I actually had like real money. Yeah. You're going to need some real money to live in San Francisco. It was crazy. And so the greatest thing that happened in San, I met my wife in San Francisco. She was a basketball coach and I was, you know, I was a baseball coach. So I had a chance to like, coach there, meet my wife. We were living together in a studio apartment across the street from Golden Gate Park. So we had like some good real estate, but you know, it was like 700 square feet of space. And it was, I mean, living paycheck to paycheck, both making like decent money. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, you know, different world in California, coach, they say. They're right. So how, they how, how long were you there before you went off to Missouri? 10 months, man, one, barely a year. It was a, you know, I was there for, yeah, I guess, yeah, it was only one season. So Tony left, Tony was at Missouri as the pitching coach at that time. And he went to TCU and then we had talked kind of right before he was about to leave and was like, Hey, do you, or what do you think about this job? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Of course. And you know, I thought that that was it. That was the job like going back to my alma mater and working at Missouri was going to be the job and I'd never leave. Like that was the job I kind of like always wanted. How, how hard was and it to talk to her? I was lucky enough. <laughs> it wasn't her. It was her family. <laughs> her her whole family's you. from out there. So I remember sitting down, we were at dinner and I'm like 28 years old, I think when I got this job. So I was like, this is kind of like my young coach in the big 12 at this time. Like, this is a pretty big deal. Like, I'm going to be this young pitching coach in the Big 12, and I thought everyone would be real happy about it. And her mom started crying at dinner. <laughs> so, yeah, I was like, this did not – that did not go as I thought it was going to. Um, but she came around, and, you know, my wife's a trooper, man. She's – like, she was a she was a basketball coach. She played Division One basketball. She played professional basketball. Mm. So she's kind of like – I think she gets it a little more than most maybe about, you know, what it means to be on the road recruiting and do the 
you know, and be coaching and be wanting to go watch film. And, you know, when you get home, you don't really leave the job. Um, but like, I, I couldn't have, there, there's no way that I get to do what I'm doing right now if I don't marry her. Cause it's so like the, the, the amount of support I have at home to, to stay late, to go in early, to be out recruiting all summer to, you know, miss stuff that, you know, most people don't miss. And she just understands and she helps our children understand. So no, I, I was, I consider myself incredibly lucky to have gone to coach at San Francisco because that meant that I got to meet my wife. Oh, yeah. So having her go to Missouri with me was like, I was going to, I wanted to do it because it was, you know, what I thought I always wanted to do. But once, once she was on board, I was like, yeah, I can, I can really do this. Well, we appreciate her doing that. Cause I, I wouldn't have bet you if you hadn't have probably sucked. <laughs> the truth, man. That is definitely the truth. So you said Mizzou was the dream job. Um, obviously, a lot of good <clears throat> yep. things going on there, and somehow you end up at Wake Forest. So take me through that. Yeah, so it's weird. It's weird because I, when I got to Missouri, I figured that was it, man. I'd just stay until they told me I couldn't coach there anymore. And a lot of that was because, obviously, I was a player there. Um, that's where I feel like I learned about baseball and, you know, had such an affinity for the place and coach Jamison was still coaching there. So it's a chance to work with the guy that coached you and Evan Pratt, who was a, who was the hitting coach when I was a player was still on staff. So it's like, he's there, you know, coach Jay's there. Um, Carrick Jackson, who's now the head coach at Memphis, who's a, a wonderful oh, yeah. friend of mine. He was the other co- He was the other coach on staff. And so it's a, it's like the greatest thing. I feel like I'm just like, I couldn't have gotten any more lucky than to be there. And then, you know, when you get to year four and it's like, there's a lot of stuff I'm starting to get really interested in, you know, in terms of things that I think we need to do from a pitching perspective that just, I never felt like, and this isn't coach Jamison's fault. I just never, I, I was getting the feeling that the things I wanted to do, some of the things I wanted to add to the stadium that was never going to happen there. And Wake Forest job comes open and I'm friends with Bill Salento, who was the recruiting coordinator there at the time. And he is kind of like on the same wavelength. I felt like I was, and we're talking about like getting a track man. And now everybody's got one, but you know, seven years ago, eight years ago, whenever that was, nobody had one. And he's like, we're going to get the, we're going to get a track man here. And I was just like, I got to be a part of this. And then that turns into the pitching lab that we ended up building you know, at Wake, and it's like the vision that Coach Walter and Billy, you know, had at Wake Forest to make it a destination for term in the terms of player development was what drew me to that job. Um, they, I got to do what I really like to do, which is work with pitchers, and that was really like what, and I could do it with every resource possible. You know, anything that we wanted or anything that we felt like we needed, whether it's a biomechanics lab or a, you know a bunch of force plates or TrackMan indoors and TrackMan outdoors and a fifteen, I think we had a fifteen camera setup in our between our pitching lab and our bullpen. Whether it's any of that stuff, it's like they really were just open minded to if you think you need it, let's get it. And it allowed me to just kind of stretch out as a coach. And I got the feeling at the end at Missouri, I didn't I didn't know that I was going to get to do that. So I think my interest and my love of learning probably took me to wake, even though my heart was in Missouri. Well, sometimes, you know, you, you got to grow and you need technology and 
you know, a, a vision to grow, to get after it. And there's no better place where the vision meets technology meets unlimited budgets like bomb stadium. So you, you end up leaving what you end no up doubt. leaving Wake Forest to head to the university of Arkansas. Um, so tell me how that came about. And obviously it's been a, a great transition for you. And, and I know personally you, you love your job and love being there. So kind of tell me what it's like to have been there so far. Man, unbelievable. I'll never forget. I was, it was after the, I guess it was, we went to a super regional at Wake in 17, lost to Florida, came back, had a year in 18 that none of us were happy about. And then the fall of the fall of 18, we had just finished fall practice. We're getting down to the end of fall practice. And like Wes Johnson called me and I didn't know Wes at the time at all. And I've gotten to know him and he's obviously a great dude and a really good coach, but he calls me and kind of like, Hey, would you have any interest in the Arkansas job? I think I'm going to leave for the big leagues. And at the time I was like, wow, you know, you're leaving for the big leagues. Unbelievable. But why me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like where, where did my name, how did like, I didn't know coach Van Horn at all. So, you know, how is this happening? And, and Wes, you know, it, I think he just maybe thought that I, was into some of the same stuff he was, or, you know, I don't know exactly how that happened, but, you know, I'm, I'm indebted to him for, you know, passing my name along. I think, I think he had something to do with that. And, you know, from there, I got a call from coach Van Horn or coach Van Horn called my boss and my boss is like, Hey, the, you know, Arkansas wants to, wants to talk to you about their pitching job. What do you think? And I tried to act like I wasn't excited because I was talking to my current yeah. boss, but I was like, total no brainer if they actually want me to go down there and you know got got on a plane like three or four days later like two days before thanksgiving got on a plane with my wife we got to bomb stadium and i remember coach van horn picked me up at the airport we drove straight to the stadium and as you're driving in you see northwest arkansas and and i'm gonna be honest like i didn't know what to expect i'd, I'd only been to bomb one other time when we was when it was at Missouri when I was at Missouri just for a midweek game I didn't know much about it other than it was freaking awesome I know what everybody knows about it like an unbelievable fan base and you know great facilities but driving through Northwest Arkansas I was like God this is this place beautiful so I had a chance to do that and then get into the stadium and then as soon as I got to the stadium if I had needed any more incentive to want to be the pitching coach at Arkansas like when you walk into Bomb Walker Stadium it just blows your mind that this is a college baseball stadium. So walking in, getting a chance to look at it a little bit, it was like, if they offer this job to me, I'm taking it a hundred percent. And, you know, it was lucky enough on the trip, coach Van Horn offered me the job. And I guess the rest is kind of history. You know, my time at Arkansas, I mean, what do you say? Um, I got to coach, un I've gotten to coach unbelievable players from you know, they run the gamut from the first group that I had when I showed up halfway through the season that were so welcoming. And, you know, I, I credit those guys like Isaiah Campbell and Cody Scroggins and, you know, Jacob Costi shock and you know, Connor Nolan and all those guys that I got to coach Matt Cronin right away. And they just, it wasn't like, who's this guy coming in trying to be our coach. It was like, what can this guy help us with? And that's when, you know, you're at a good spot when it's about just, they just could, all they cared about was getting better. Um, and I have to credit Dave Jorn and Wes with, you know, setting the, I think, setting the standard 
for what it meant to be a pitcher at Arkansas. So I, I'm, all, I'm always indebted to those guys for doing such a good job before I got here. They made my job, my transition a lot easier because you have guys that know how to work and guys that care about it. And they understood what it meant to, and this time, you know, I'm, I'm a guy from Wake Forest and, you know, Missouri before that, I didn't know what it meant to be a Razorback. I just knew I had a good job. And I learned that that first year, like what it meant and how important it was and what it means to the state of Arkansas that, that we have a team on the field that they can be proud of. And those guys helped me learn that, those pitchers. And so I'm, I'm forever indebted to our staff that year. And then, you know, from there, they have the COVID year that's kind of a wash, but it was it was wild, you know, how they had to, our guys had to work on their own and communicate. And, you know, it was, it was weird, but everyone was going through the kind of the same thing. But you know, I'll give our guys credit. Like, that's a tough time to not have any real direction other than some emails and some FaceTimes and some Zoom calls. And, you know, our guys came back in 21 ready to go. We were lucky um, in the sense that we had some guys get a lot better over that time. You know, you have Kevin Copps emerge and win the Golden Spikes, which is, I mean, nobody saw that coming, including Kevin. But, you know, he had done so many things on his own during that COVID shutdown that is just, he was a special kid before, you know, before he was able to do what he did, but to come out and win the golden spikes in, in 21 and just an un, unbelievable year. And, you know, you start looking at that team and you start to see a lot of things happened um, that we weren't expecting, you know, Connor Nolan only threw like, I think like 12 innings that year in 21 because he got banged up and some other reasons, but that's a kid that, you know, fast forward a year into 22, he's second in the, country in innings pitched so to not have him and do what that team did is pretty special with some other guys that had stepped up and you know that 21 season was just unbelievable regular season and postseason until we didn't get it done against NC State um, and then the 22 season it's like that's a crazy year it's a total roller coaster never felt like always felt like our offense was going to just start showing up and you know we went through some ups and downs offensively and on the mound and really the whole team we always played good defense and you know when that team put it together at the end that's one of the funnest that you I mean it was tough because we had to go on the road and play an unbelievably good Oklahoma State team who I still think might have been one of the best teams we played all year and then go on the road to NC State or not NC State but the North Carolina and, and beat a really good North Carolina team to get to the World Series and then you know we're one of the last three teams standing um, at the end of the year with a team, honestly, like there was times last year where I was like, I don't know what's going on with this team. I don't know if we're going to get out. I don't I don't know if we're going to make the SEC tournament. So, you know, it was a, it was a wild year, but I think the thing that's about this journey so far at Arkansas is I've never been at a place and I've coached it. I've what I think are some good places, but I've never really been at a place where you can feel how, how much, how important it is to the state, like how we play, how important that is. And not that we win, but how we play, like what we, what kind of product we're putting on the field, you know, how our guys conduct themselves, how hard they play, how they compete. Like our fans demand that stuff and they should. And I think that that says a lot about the team that coach, the program that coach Van Horn has built. It's like, it comes to be expected. So that's this has been the first place I've ever been, and I, I I could probably coach at every team in the at every school in the country and not feel the same way I feel about Arkansas in terms of those things. It's just that important to the people in the state, and I love it. You know, I just think that our fans are so great, and 
they care so much and you know our players feel that too and they're going to want to work incredibly hard to make sure that the fans are proud of us and you know that that's a driving thing that is an everyday in in front of our players minds every day is what it means to be a Razorback and I don't I've never felt that way about any other place I've coached and I don't know that I'd ever feel about as as strongly as I feel about it you know as any place I I may coach in the future like Arkansas special you know it, it's it's obviously special to me special to you special to probably everybody listening but I, I don't know how much of this is privy to our friendship or what breaking news Kendall Rogers bright so I don't want to say too much but there was a time when some professional programs called and you interviewed and um, you know like Ian I don't know what I know firsthand through our friendship or what's out there so I won't say too much but you turned down some some good places to work to stay at Arkansas um, and obviously like anybody else professional baseball is probably always on your mind so for you to do that to stay at Arkansas to me um, just says a lot about the situation. So um, was professional baseball something that's, that was kind of on your mind? And obviously Wes had made it real popular to, to, to make the jump. But, um, you know, what what in the end made you want to stay, you know, with the Razorbacks and, and go through that historic run y'all went through? I think that, you know, working for Coach Van Horn is a huge driver. Like he really sets the tone for the program. But, yeah, professional baseball is definitely something – Going back to Wake, I mean, in 17, I interviewed with the Seattle Mariners for their big league job um, and had, like, had plenty of conversations with other teams leading up to coming to Arkansas. And I don't know, man. It was like I remember sitting there with, in, interviewing with the Yankees and you're in this big boardroom talking to these, like, Brian Cashman and Aaron Boone and all these guys. And it's like you're, I was looking around and I was just like, this is really unbelievable, but – I have it so good at Arkansas and I love working with players and I love our team and I kind of, and I love what I do there. I should not do this. And it was a really weird feeling because you're sitting there, it's the New York Yankees. And I don't know that I would have ended up getting the job or not. Who knows? But like, I, I called him the next day and said, I'm just not interested you, you, after interviewing. You probably don't remember this, but you told me in the airport when, I don't know when you flew back compared to when you, yeah, but you told me you were in the airport and you're like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm out. Like I'm staying. Cause I, you know, yeah, I, was, I, remember, I was, I remember, I was that. trying to line up season tickets already. I was trying to make sure I was first on this. <laughs> uh, I remember that conversation and I decided after, like, I literally decided in the, in the interview room that I'm just not doing this. Well, and it was because of Arkansas. It wasn't because I was like worried about working for the Yankees. It was because of Arkansas, because of how special it is to be here. And, you know, we've got everything we need from a player development standpoint. We've got more than most. If you look at like some professional teams, no, no doubt about that. And and I feel like we get to do like working for Coach Van Horn. He, he lets you just do your job. I mean, he's demanding in terms of what your job is and what it entails and what he wants out of the like for me out of the pitchers. Uh, but he's not. He doesn't get in the way. He doesn't just tell me how I should do my job. He just says, "Hey, these are the things we'd like our guys to be able to do." And it's my job to figure out how to get them to do that. It's my job to try to recruit players that can do the things that we're going to need them to do. And I just felt like professional baseball, and I, and I do feel this way, and, and maybe someday it'll change. It's like, I don't, I like to do my job the way I like to do my job. I don't, I don't really feel like I need 15 people telling me how to do my job. So at the college level, working for someone like Coach Van Horn, I get some freedom to do my job 
the way I feel like I need to do it. And I have people to answer to just like anybody, you know, I need, if the pitchers aren't good, that's my fault, no matter what, no matter if, what the circumstances, it's my fault. So I understand that. And I welcome that kind of, you know, I welcome that, but like, I don't really need, I don't feel like I need to be consulting a team of people if I want to change somebody's breaking ball grip. And I just felt like I was going to get a lot of that in pro ball, not necessarily just the Yankees, other teams too. Um, but yeah, I've, you know, had some opportunities to move on or, you know, go to some different things and turn them down and kind of turn them down out of the hand a little bit, just because I just know what I have here. And the university of Arkansas is great. We have a great athletic director that really takes care of us. And, you know, obviously, like I said, the fans are unbelievable. Coach Van Horn's unbelievable. We've got this great facility and I don't want for much. So obviously coach, coach Van Horn's a very supportive guy. So tell me what it's like when you walk in his office and go, Hey, 18 months after Wes Johnson's left to go to the Mariners. When you go, hey coach, <laughs> hey coach, I'm going to interview for the Yankees. How uh, how great, how nervous was that to walk in there and say, hey? Oh, it was not comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> well, mainly just because like I know I know what it just like I knew who I replaced. Yeah, yeah. And now one thing I'll say about Coach Van Horn is he's like, you know, you've been contacted by a bunch of these people. You should you should do one of them. Like take take one of them, do one of them, just so you've done it. Yeah. And I did it. You know, I, I went and I decided it was going to be the Yankees I was going to go interview with. And, and he was right. It was a good experience. But I think the other part is, I think, like, he, he's been here for so long that he knows what this place is all about. And if you have the, the right people in place that work for you, then I think he's, he trusts that they're going to make the right decisions. And the best thing I ever did was go do it because it was an unbelievable experience. And, like, just to be, like, even considered for – a job with any professional baseball team is always a huge, huge honor, but you just know what I've got at Arkansas. And, you know, I know that there's a lot left to learn too from coach Van Horn. Oh, no like, doubt about that. That guy's forgotten more about baseball than I'll ever know. You know, Brian's kid, Brian Cashman's kid. We got to coach Teddy on, you know, one of our Jupiter trips. So he obviously great people. And, and we, we mm-hmm. appreciate uh, every we appreciate them interviewing you, and I appreciate you staying. So, uh, you know, kind of, kind of to get back on track to, to something I think is important. I don't necessarily know how to ask this question, um, but but want to know, like at what, like you and Wes, for example, or, or we had Wes on episode one of season two. Like you guys move differently. I think there are a lot of good pitching coaches out there, and I think there are a lot of guys that um, feels important and you know, pitch calling and, and tunneling and all that stuff. But Wes have, and, and there's other guys too that I'm just not as close with. What you guys have been able to do with biomechanics and track man and just really learning how the body moves and, you know, force plates. When did that start for you? Like, were you always a analytical, how does this, why does my body work this way kind of guy? Or did that just show up one day and you just did a deep dive into it? I always felt like, with, with any metric or anything that you're evaluating, whether it's an, an analytic, whether it's a statistic, whether it's movement, whatever you're evaluating, the movement of the body influences the metrics that you're chasing. So if we're trying to get somebody to throw a fastball with 20 inches of vertical break, we have to evaluate how they move first. So everything has to start with how you move. And I've always been into numbers. Like as long as I, as long as I can remember, I've been into numbers. Um, and what they mean, what they can tell us. And cause they just don't lie to you. Most of the time, like they tell you the truth, 
Like they tell you if you're good or they tell you if you're not good. It's like a win-loss record. Like you can think you're good, but if you're five games under 500, that's who you are. So I've always looked at that and I've always tried to evaluate things analytically first and try to like think with my gut second. Um, I trust my gut, but I, I want to be able to back things up. Like I, I feel like I owe it to the players that we coach to go down every single pathway I can in their, in their development. And whether that's analytics, whether it's biomechanics, whether it's whatever, I have to know how to use all of those things. I have to know how to use every piece of those tools. I have to know how to use every piece of equipment in our building and know how to use it for them. Not just in the, in my job is not to tell them how much I know about pitching. It's a, it's to help them. So if I'm not going to look at all of those things, I'm not going to take a look at every single thing I can like peel back to try to help them, then I'm doing them a disservice. We have kids every year that come to the University of Arkansas that turn something down. They turn down money from professional baseball. They turn down opportunities at other places. They turn down opportunities to pitch earlier in their career. They turn down all kinds of things to come be a part of our program. And if I don't do everything I possibly can and exhaust every resource in front of me, then I'm not doing my job as a coach. So when I look at things like our motion capture downstairs, our markerless motion capture that we have downstairs in the PDC, like it's just another layer of coaching. And it's just something else that we can use to be able to put them in position to be able to do some of the things that we might be able to, that might be able to help them either get a role on our team. Like maybe the, maybe the ceiling for this kid is just like left-handed reliever for Arkansas, or maybe the ceiling is left-handed starter in the big leagues, but we have to, peel back everything we possibly can to try to give them every opportunity they can to, to reach those goals. And if I'm not going to use it all, then why are we even bother having it? So when things like biomechanics and track man and force plates and, you know, whatever piece of technologies are out there now, it seems like there's a new one that comes up every day. It's really about figuring out what is the, what's the cocktail for this picture? Like, what is it like force? Is it the force mound? Is it, the force mount on track man is it an edutronic view of their curveball and motion capture like there's a bunch of different things that we have and our our biggest hurdle and job is to try to figure out what what makes all these guys tick and what are the what are the pieces of information that are going to help them it might just be like a heat map it might be as simple as that it might be as simple as telling a pitcher to throw more glove side fastballs because they don't hit them as well and that can organize their body to be able to make pitches in a different way. And that can, that can influence the metrics of their pitches. Or we can influence the metrics of the pitches because we know that like hitters don't hit fastballs that move like this in that part of the zone. So we have to look at everything. I have to look at everything um, when we're trying to think about the way that we're going to coach pitchers. So I've always, think, I've always thought about it like, analytics and biomechanics and all that stuff are important it's just if you holistically coach your pitchers you got to use all that stuff tell me tell me let's say there's a Peyton Paulette out there a Jordan Husky a Will McIntyre somebody that we know is talented and just 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 the one light switch away from being great um like Peyton was b- before his injury what's the one thing you look at like you you're watching them throw you like, you know, the old saying, the arm really works, or he competes, or, hey, bases loaded, this is who you want. What's the one thing you look at, whether it's spin rate or this or that, that tells you that, that your mind's not playing tricks on you? That What's the one thing you go to to really kind of tell what a, what a pitcher's got or the projectability? 
I think that it's a little bit of a two-part question. If it, The one thing that I would go to first to determine whether a pitcher's got it or not is after the fall, I just look at how our hitters hit him. Like, there are a lot of things that pitchers do that I might not like or might not be conventional or might not be sexy. But if the hitters don't hit them, then they're doing something right. And then from there, we start to really like dive into what do they do, whether it's movement, whether it's a metric on their fastball, whether it's um, a like curveball like Peyton had, like a 3,200 RPM curveball. Like, you know, I think that you can try to find something from everybody. I, I think that the my job is like to take the one thing that Will McIntyre does really well and get him to do it a lot. Um, and then it makes everything else better. So it's like, if we're looking at one individual thing for each pitcher, it's hard to say that there's one thing to look for, but the first thing, first and only thing I think is important. I mean, whether you're evaluating the pitchers or whether you're evaluating your own staff is, you know, this kid might throw 98 miles an hour on repeat, but he's also getting barreled all over the place. Mm -hmm. Like what do the hitters do to him? Like, how does he, because there's, there's things that are non-quantifiable. Like you could try to measure deception, and you can try to measure toughness and you can try to measure a lot of different things, but there's some things that are just non-quantifiable in baseball. And the things that are quantifiable, like batting average against on his breaking ball, like there's a reason why it's 350 and there's a reason why the ex average exit velocity is 96 miles an hour. Like it's not that good of a pitch or he's throwing it in the wrong places. So the first thing I would always go to an evaluation scale is what are the hitters doing against him? It's like why you're, you find yourself recruiting pitchers. You're like, this guy's really short for us, but he doesn't give up. He just doesn't get hit or he gets these guys out or he pitches in the big events and he just finds a way to get outs. So I think against like the, the first thing I always go to is the batter's box. And what do the hitters look like? Do you have a guy, you know, I ain't going to name names, even though we probably both know who I'm talking about. But let's, there was a guy who, you know, everybody that was 6'1", that threw the slider, you know, 86, 88 with a good slider, like he thought he could turn that into 95 with the with the best slider in the league. Is there a guy, like, when you're out in the summer, I mean, is there a prototypical, like, are you a 12'6 guy? I, I mean, I know you're going to tell me, like, hey, I need outs and anyway, I get them. But are you a, you know, like, what what are you looking for? When, when you think like, hey, I could really help this improve. Are you a 12-6 guy? Are you a slider guy? Are you a splitter? I mean, what's kind of your go-to? I think that if you can really, really spin a curveball, you got something. Like if you can really spin a curveball, like the slider is going to be the the pitch you see more frequently, certainly, because it's the, the pitch that gets thrown the most at the lower levels because it's an easier pitch to teach. But if you can spin a curveball, like if you can do something and shape it, because we can go a lot of different directions with that. Like you can tighten that up, sit it on its side and turn it into a slurve. Like we had a kid or we have a kid, Brady Tiger in our program right now. That's, you know, he throws a, he, he came to us with like a, a shorter slider, but it was like, Hey, I also throw this curveball, And so we took a look at it and it's like, Oh my God, that thing is an absolute weapon. You should throw that pitch way more than you throw this other pitch. And, I'm always more going to be more apt to, if you can spin a curveball, you can go a ton of different ways. You can always shorten it up, turn it into a slider. You can take it sideways and turn it into a slurve. You can keep it as a curveball. It gives you separation off of fastballs. Like I love curveballs. You don't, you, you just rarely see them anymore, to be honest. Like it's hard to find them. It's hard to find good ones. That's why, like, honestly, that's why Peyton was as good as he was. 
Like Peyton had a absolute banger of a breaking ball that he could throw 80 miles an hour and it was, you know, it had 12 stick shape and it was absolutely nasty, but he doesn't go where he goes in the draft. Um, if he's not throwing that pitch. Yeah. I think Peyton was, you know, Peyton pitched so rarely coming up. I think it was just kind of what he learned at 12. I mean, I think he was no just set it in the hand, throw the, you know, put the four fingers on top for the change up. I mean, he was that one summer he threw for us. I mean, he was like, he, he would always tell me, like, Coach, I'm really just a shortstop. And I'd be like, nah, not, <laughs> not no more, partner. Uh, I think his junior year, he only threw like four innings for Benton. Um, but he, Wild. he ended up making a good run. So, well, you know, I know you got a lot going on, so I'm, I'm going to wrap this thing up. One, two questions I like to ask every coach that nobody likes to answer. Um, give me the best player you've ever seen out recruiting and give me the best player you've ever coached. Best player I've ever seen out recruiting is Nolan Arenado. Okay. He's the best I've ever seen. He was playing for the ABD Bulldogs. And this is like a backfield at Windrow Park in Orange County. They were practicing. He was on this ABD team. It was like Kyle Skipworth was a seventh, was a seventh overall pick. Nolan Arenado was on that team. There was a bunch of other guys that ended up being really good drafts or big leaguers. And I remember watching him take ground balls and hit. And I was like, that's way different than every other good player I've ever seen. He's definitely the best I've ever seen. It was a practice. I mean, I didn't even see him playing a game. But I was watching, and I was watching something else. And I was just like, oh, they're, they're practicing over there. I'll go watch that because I was bored or something with what I was watching. And <laughs> it was like, that is just a different level of player. And the other one, um, uh, Bryce Harper. I mean, I saw him play at the. It was it was the coolest and scariest thing I've ever seen. He was playing at the USA. It had to be the 16U or something, or maybe it was the 15U. I don't remember what it was, but it was like the Junior Olympics in Arizona. And they he had to play in the tournament to make the team. So he's playing, and he always played like three years older than his age group, yeah, yeah. all the way up until he's doing what he's doing right now. And he had to play with kids his own age. And it was frightening. Like when he'd go hit, it would be like, these kids need to play in the outfield because he's going to hurt them. Like it was that kind of like man strength at, at a very young age. So I think Arenado and Bryce Harper are the best two I've ever seen in person. Uh, best uh, best player I've ever coached. I mean, I'm hard pressed to say, you know, for a season, the best player I've ever coached is Kevin Copps. I mean, that's the best I've ever seen for the course of a season. Like I've never seen anything like that. That might be the single best season. If you just took the position that he plays and you just, he, he's, if you called him reliever and that's just what he did, you could argue that's the best single season in the history of the sport for that position. No one's ever done it like that. Like no one's ever been that dominant. And if you really like dig into his career, if you, if you take 2020 and just call it a wash in 2019, that kid was really good. So I would have, to, I mean, I got to say Kevin because yeah. he won the golden spikes. Speaking of, speaking of Kevin Cops, how hard or how, how long, what, what was the process of starting him that last game? Like, had that been talked about before? Did he come to y'all and say, hey, I'm ready to go? I mean, how'd that play out? Oh, I mean, I think that we was, it was, we're sitting there determining who's it going to be because we had, you know, I don't know who, if people remember this or not, but he pitched the day before. Mm-hmm. Like, he had, he threw an inning and, in, I think an inning and two-thirds or two innings that day. And I remember calling him. And I was just like, hey, man, are you still here? Because it's two hours after the game, and all the coaches are still just sitting in the locker room trying to figure out what we're going to do. 
And he's like, no, but I'm coming back. And I was like, did you forget something? He's like, no, I need to talk to you. And so, you know, I talked to him outside of our locker room and I was like, you know, we've talked about this, but this is 100% your call. No one's going to ask you to do this. And like, we can start somebody else for a couple innings. You'll pitch in the game. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm starting this game. And it was pretty simple after that. It was like, he had earned that. He had earned the right to make that decision. He had earned the right, you know, to take the ball if he wanted it. And, you know, that kid left his heart on the field. Uh, he throws eight innings against a team that was probably, if they don't have that COVID thing in the World Series, they probably win that whole thing. And, you know, Kevin took, you know, went toe-to-toe with those guys. And, you know, I think that what led it, we let him make the decision. And I don't know that I would have done that with anybody else in my entire coaching career, which is why I guess I go back to him being the best player I've ever coached, that, like, that was going to be his decision to pitch or not pitch. Uh, he he definitely he made a lot of people proud that day. I mean, he it's hard to do more than he did, and it was really a shame. I think that was his only loss that year, maybe. So it was really a shame. Yeah, I think it was twelve and one with like twelve saves, or ten and one with twelve saves, or some crazy. Like, yeah, it was just an unbelievable that season. Like, we ain't never going to see that again. Well, you know, the thing is, most guys won't probably get the chance because they'll be starters by then. You know, that was what was so, you know, just watching <laughs> right. from afar, it was just like, hey, you need him in the, you know, you need him in the rotation sometime between 18 and 22. You know, that was yeah. what was kind of weird. Most guys kind of end up, you know, throwing Wednesdays or throwing here. But um, anyway, hopefully, hopefully Ledbetter, some of these guys will be the new Kevin Cops this year. and They'll have a good season. Oh, boy. God, God willing. We're all hoping. Coach, I ask everybody five questions to end the show, and I want to. I'm assuming I'm just going to assume that you watch every episode, so you know. But um, we, we call it the five moments of truth. So um, I hate okay. to put you on the spot a little bit, but I like Ready. to ask. I like to ask all my successful friends uh, this question because I think it's very important. What's the best advice you've ever received, and who'd you hear it from? Have the confidence in yourself that others have in you from my dad. It's a good man. It's a good man. Give me a uh, question too. Give me the biggest mentor you've had. Oof. And I got to say Tim Jamison, because it was the one that kind of got me started and I can always bounce stuff off him and I can always go to that guy. I mean, he was my coach and I worked for him. So I'd have to say Tim Jamison. Coach Jamison. He, he was, he was definitely good to me. Uh, I, I like Coach Jamison a lot. Question three, let's say Coach Van Horn comes to you tomorrow and says, hey, we got to hire, uh, we got to hire a new coach. Who, who's the young guy in this profession that we can spotlight as an up-and-coming guy that's got it? Oof. Man, that's a tough question. There's so many good ones. Um, boy. Man. Just trying so, to think of all the good ones. Get, not like you to get stumped, Coach. I'm just like dumbfounded. It's a great question. Um, I think that like he's not in college baseball right now, but you know, Eric Jagers, who's oh, yeah. the director of pitching for the Mets, is the guy. Well, and he is. I think he's 27 or something, but he's an absolute rock star. I think if he got into the college game, he would run it in a couple of years. He's he's a he's a stud. Good. We, we we on our show, coach. We try to highlight the young guys that are, you know, next yeah, next in line. He should be in. He should be first in line. 
Well, I don't get to make the line, but we'll save him a spot somewhere at the front. Um, question four, give me your goals, either professionally or personally for 2023. I want to coach as well as I possibly can with the group we have in front of us, with the group that we have. I want to do everything I possibly can for them. Uh, my goals personally are I want to get to more 10U, 8U basketball games. I have not got to enough of those to watch my girls play. So my son is just doing karate right now. He doesn't do anything until the spring and play a little bit of baseball. But I need to get to more 10 and under and 8 and under basketball games. How, how old is your son? He's six. There's a good chance by the time he reaches high school that I will be retired. But if not, we will, <laughs> we will, we will save a spot for him in an in a unnamed organization that would love to Oh, I'll tell you what, he'd be lucky. We also have a softball program too, Coach. I, I will probably be retired by the time the tenure, <laughs> the tenure gets to the high school. But if not, we will make some softball games. Last question, Coach. I started this whole podcast with, with just trying to promote change. Man, I really want to, um, you know, just, just be a part of something bigger than me. And, and I felt uh, the biggest asset I had was having some of the greatest friends in the world like you. And I'm very proud to call you a friend. Question five to end this thing is, you know, what can we all do to, to be a part of change and just make this place better than we found it and make the world a better place? So I'll talk about my sport. And I think that it can kind of just filter into society in general is we have to do more for minority coaches in my sport. Our sport does not have enough, nearly enough, especially at the higher levels. And there's no reason for it because there's a lot of good ones out there. And there's, you know, they're no different than any of the other coaches that are out there grinding and doing their job. But we have to start doing more for minority coaches at the college level for sure. I think that that could help a lot of things. And societally, I think it's kind of the same thing. It's like, why can't we all just be one group of people that all loves each other? And I think if we all did a little bit more of that, this place would be a, this would be a better place to live. Well, we, we definitely want to be a part of change coach and, and uh, make this thing better than when we found it. That's the goal. You know, with the way the world is today, I don't know when the end is, but I'm hoping that I left it better than I found it. So that's why we started the podcast and I appreciate you coming on episode three of season two of the Chase Brewster show. I know you got a lot going on and I really appreciate you taking this hour out to talk and hopefully our listeners and, and everyone enjoyed it. Yeah, man. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. It's a, it's an honor to be on. And obviously I, I value our friendship deeply and, and thank you very much for everything you've done for me. All right, coach. You know, I love you. If you need anything from me, just feel free to let me know. Sounds good, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks coach. Bye now. Like a knucklehead.